Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 27, Schizophrenic History. Welcome back to History Against the Grain. How's your week been, Chris? The week uh, is flying by, I tell you, because, you know, what I think it is, Josh, is the Harvest Festival. You know, we got Halloween coming up. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as I walk around, you know, uh, down here where I live, uh, people are starting to you know, get in the holiday spirit of it, I guess, and, and you know, put up decorations and whatnot. Uh, and I think what it must be is that after four years of this, I just love to be scared. <laughs> and so this is the ho- this is the holiday that, that scares you. And honestly, the scariest thing about it so far is what I read in the New York Times today. <laughs> now, Unfortunately, that, that happens a little often, right? That's the scariest thing. <laughs> So here's my trick or treat uh, for our listeners, okay? And I'm not even going to tell you the title of, of, of the article. I'm just going to read the paragraph to you, and then we'll see how scary you think it is, okay? Perhaps nowhere has benefited more from the idea of the romance of Southern weddings than Charleston, South Carolina, where the Civil War began. And which is now one of the top destination wedding locales in the United States, hosting nearly 6,000 weddings in 2019 before the coronavirus pandemic interrupted the industry. Close quote. Are you scared? I, I'm, I'm starting to, yeah, my, I got goosebumps right now. I don't know why right, yet. Well, hang on. I can, I, can feel hang on. I can feel the terror rising. We're only going to get scarier, Okay. One of the popular venues in the Charleston area for weddings is the Magnolia. And and if you want to do it right, you got to say a Magnolia (laughs) Plantation. That is the historic home of the Magnolia Plantation, which, according to the article, retains the quarters where enslaved people lived to provide, quote, a powerful opportunity for us to talk about that aspect of our history. That uh, from the gentleman, uh, Mr. Hasty, uh, who is the current owner of the Magnolia uh, Plantation there in South Carolina. So uh, if, you're, if you're not scared now, I don't know what it's going to take, Josh. Wait, is he saying that we should talk about that part of our nation's history during our weddings? That that seems that seems incongruous to me. <laughs> well, he only said that aspect. Okay. In other words, he, he, you know, this man apparently is the king of understatement or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, his argument is that the reason we still want to have weddings here is because it's an it's an educational opportunity for people to learn as as they exchange their marital vows uh, to to learn about that aspect uh, of America's past. That is extremely bizarre. I don't, scary? I mean, unfortunately, it's too predictable to be scary for me. 
you know, our willful willful ignorance of, of the past, our <laughs> desire to... Didn't uh, Lindsey Graham talk about the good old days of segregation the other day? <laughs> um, you know, in, in uh, the Edward Baptist book, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, he's got mm-hmm. this thing. He, he actually speaks directly to this issue of these weddings and in, in plantations. said, if we call plantations what they are, which is slave labor camps, people probably wouldn't have, want to have their weddings there quite as often as... Uh, <laughs> Is when they're called plantations. I mean, it's, it's such a great example of how language distorts, right? That that the words we choose are not neutral at all. That it's it's um, it's presenting when you say plantation is presenting this this idyllic view that's been you know built up in this post slavery uh, century and century plus, and and people are still seeking out that that idol that they associate with the the old plantation. It's it is truly insane, though. Yeah, the Times article even uh, referenced uh, some kind of survey that was done and. You know, some, um, you know, great percentage uh, of the people who were thinking about having their weddings at a plantation identified with the imagery from the movie Gone with the Wind. Mm. So, the you know, the columned mansion and, and uh, uh, you know, the magnolia blossoms uh, and, you know, the sort of moss covered trees. Yep. I mean, I, w- I always think about the Bob Dylan song, you know, Blind Willie McTell, where, you know, he actually... Dylan turns that into a nightmarish landscape. Uh, but in the Times, and, and you'll you'll love this because, uh, of course, New York Times uh, never won to, to call something by its actual name, could only bring itself to call the, these plantations labor camps mm-hmm. as opposed to, as you pointed out, Edward Baptiste, slave labor camps. Yeah. Uh, in other words... Labor camp, that almost sounds like something like during the New Deal, like the yeah. CCC or something. They put a bunch of you know, unemployed people to work, you know, building you know, hiking trails, fire trails or something. Yeah. Uh, but no, a slave labor camp indeed. And so uh, one gentleman who, who seems to have understood this in an article um, said that the disconnect, basically, and how the sites, you know, these plantations, in other words, were created in the first place is part of what he called the South's schizophrenic approach to history. Uh, and uh, so there, I think we have our, maybe our episode title. <laughs> it's a frantic history. I like it. So uh, that, that was my Halloween trick or treat moment oh for you. And I, I was hoping I could scare you. That's it. It's so bad. I, I mean, I, I would love to see the, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising, but see the, the, the survey of who's getting married at these plantations. I'm guessing not a lot of black folks choosing to get, get married on a plantation. Yeah, you'd be right there. Um, it's some deep insight there. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> but, here for. But seriously, no. But the article, I must say, uh, to uh, you know, to round off this thing, is that the article does mention uh, one uh, black couple who were married there uh, at that. I believe it was the Magnolia Plantation, or, or one like it uh, in Charleston. Uh, back in no, oh, I don't know, around 2012 or so, and they had 700 guests. And they very um, much had it, uh, met it head on. You know, they, they said, we're doing this specifically to redeem the, the souls of all our ancestors that had to labor on these places under such inhumane conditions, et cetera. And, and, and we're doing it uh, for them. And, I, you know, I read this and I still don't know exactly how I feel about that exactly. I mean, I respect, you know, their, their right to do what they do. Well, you can run off to Vegas. You can, you know, you can go to a plantation. You know, mm-hmm. but but they seem to have a principled reason 
uh, for wanting to do it. But certainly they are the outliers uh, yeah. that, uh, by and large, the vast majority of uh, black couples uh, do not, in fact, choose the plantation option. I, I think that's smart. I think it's a good, good choice. And by the way, should be a good choice for everybody regardless of your, your own background. <laughs> this is my plea to our listeners. Don't get married on a plantation. There are many... A plantation, ple- you say? <laughs> <laughs> I think of mint juleps and hoop-skirted um, gals. I don't know what could possibly be wrong with this. <laughs> don't get married on a slave labor camp. <laughs> oh, heavens no. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think of it. Or was it history books just all it took the way the land retained its looks in preservation tents we see these lines go sanitized revised returned again same stars i know today we have another blockbuster interview for our listeners uh, we've brought back a good friend of ours good friend of history against the grain jordan mcgowan uh, Sacramento area teacher and community uh, activist, uh, and so we're going to uh, to get to that interview uh, here in a bit because Jordan, uh, I know we agree, Josh is a voice that uh, folks uh, need to hear uh, at, at this moment uh, in our nation's uh, history. Uh, but we want to set it up by talking about something that I know you've been. Uh, ruminating over, uh, shall we say, uh, in this quarantine uh, time. Uh, housebound as you are, you find yourself going down, you know, the rabbit hole on some thought-provoking article and coming back out uh, with a story to tell. So uh, let's break it down for our folks. What, what have you been thinking about? Yeah, thank, thank you for that um, introduction. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about meritocracy, and, and it's something I think about just in general because, you know, we look around our society and, and just at basically every institution you can think of, we have the worst people in charge. <laughs> you could probably find a few where it's not the worst possible person. The NBA, I guess, is under fairly good hands. I don't know. That's about it I can think of right now. Um, but, you know, every major corporation, every uh, every government agency, just the worst possible people <laughs> you can think of. And so, you know, the idea of meritocracy is so central to this this idea of American exceptionalism, the, the entire idea of of this idealized version of the United States, you know, that you work hard and you you succeed and that's open to anybody regardless of where you come from or who you are. And the idea has always been a farce, um, to a large degree at least. And uh, and it, it's just even more clear now. Well, the thing that got me really thinking about this is a recent article in Mother Jones, mm-hmm. which is a sentence I haven't said probably since 2004. Um, I may have forgotten Mother Jones was the thing. But they recently published this amazing piece by a journalist named Leland Nally, who did this, uh, got involved in this project where he found access to Jeffrey Epstein's little black book, this famed little black book that contained the names of all these people who he had contact with. There's over 2,000 names in that book. And what he ended up doing is calling every single person on in the black book to try to you know piece together this story about who Epstein was and, and how he was able to commit you know these horrendous crimes. Um, even while rubbing shoulders with the elite of the elite in the American and global society. And so, you know, the, the entire thing is worth reading. I would, I would definitely check it out. We'll, we'll post a link to it, certainly, on our website. But what really stuck out to me, and I think it's the part that, that a lot of people react to as well, 
is that towards the end of the article, Lally turns the question of Epstein's actual talents, right? Um, essentially, what he's trying to do now is move the, the conversation away from Epstein and place the conversation now about who is elite in the world and in American society. And so it's when he turns this idea of, well, what actually made Epstein successful? What gave him access to this wealth and status and power and, uh, and the, the powerful people with which, who, whom which he, he kind of rubbed shoulders with? The assumption had always been that, that Epstein was some kind of master salesman, that he, was, he had this gift, right? And he attracted people through that gift. And, um, and the idea then is that um, he was able to use that genius as a salesman to cultivate his way into, the pl into the, a place within that global elite. Lally notes, though, that this is incorrect, that what he, he learned from all these calls, that this was totally an incorrect assumption. He says, quote, to call Epstein a grifter is to assume he circumvented some genuine meritocratic uh, world order, end quote. Uh, the idea that, that that order is made up of actual talent who earn their rank. The truth is, Lowry continues, quote, the elite world is populated by hordes of loathsome, boring, untalented people living their bumbling, idiotic lives while just so happening to wield some share of the preposterous global bounty that he, meaning Epstein, and the rest were after. Epstein, it turns out, quote, earned it the same way they all did, which to say precisely, not at all. And then he ends this section with, uh, you know, just a, a scathing indictment of the entire system. He says that Epstein was not a scam artist at all uh, because there is no scam here. Lolly says it's grifters, grifting grifters <laughs> all the way down. That this essentially is the system that exists and Epstein was able to access that system. But the, the, the true kind of uh, uh, revelation, I think, is that it wasn't just Epstein who was terrible. It was this entire system that was full of the awful kind of people who would be attracted to somebody like Epstein in the first place. So this piece got me thinking about the idea of meritocracy and the purpose it serves within a society. And what I realized is that where Lolly uses Epstein as evidence of the lack of meritocracy, I actually see Epstein, this, this story of, of Epstein and the global elite, as an example, the hollowness of meritocracy as a concept, right? That in our late capitalist global order, wealth essentially equals success, success equals virtue. And the assumption is that those who achieve you know, that rank achieved that virtue, um, had some kind of talent, had some kind of skill then got, that got him there. And so in that sense, our boring, bumbling, idiotic elites have done exactly what they were supposed to do. It is a meritocracy. The problem is that what is considered merit in our late capitalist society are all the worst possible qualities you can imagine. Uh, the problem is that uh, the values that elevate people like them to their status are all horrific values. And so when you look around at all these awful people who make up the American elite, you can say, oh, this is some kind of coincidence, but it's not a coincidence, in fact. It's our system telling us exactly what, what we are. It's telling us exactly what we value. Um, and so I think it's important to be able to understand that. It's also important to understand that meritocracy has always been a little bit of a lie, uh, really a legitimizing device more than an actual measure of some kind of skill or talent or value. So what do you think about that? Well, you know, when you told me about it, I thought it was, you know, a really rich kind of concept, you know, for us to dig back into some of these things that we've been going on about recently, you know, the early modern era in history, the right. the beginnings of capitalism, uh, et cetera. And, and I know you're going to talk about uh, China here in a second, uh, mm. which I think is also you know, from a kind of global standpoint, a nice um, sort of frame, you know, to, to, to kind of judge these, these big concepts. And, 
And I would say this, you know, uh, as we were just sort of commiserating a moment ago about the plantation weddings, that, that really the uh, planter elite, that is the slave owning, plantation owning, political elite uh, in this country from the very beginning, you know, from, from the, the first colonies right up through the Civil War, were uh, themselves sort of exemplars of what was supposed to be a meritocracy. Because mm -hmm. unlike, say, you know, the old gentry of England who, you know, were given their titles uh, and their, their noble status, et cetera, their privileges as part of what was some, you know, supposed to be some kind of organic hierarchy, some great chain, you know, of, of being. They certainly weren't poster boys for upward mobility. You, if you had it, you had it. If you didn't, you didn't. You know, there was no idea that you could earn your way necessarily into, you know, the English uh, gentry until... You know, this early modern era where we start to see because of the changing economic uh, dynamic there with capitalism, this idea for uh, or pot potential for accumulating wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so. Slave owning was, you know, if we just sort of divorce it from a second from all the, you know, the moral, you know, reprehensiveness of it, the slave owning was just another way of accumulating vast wealth potentially. And for those who were able to do it, holding themselves up, therefore, as exemplars of that kind of uh, merit of, of having earned something, built something, uh, is going to be, you know, ingrained. And, and, you know, so meritocracy, the fact that we end up with an Epstein, you know, is not all that surprising when you consider the origins of it. In the history, the prehistory of the United States, in the in the wealth accumulation of slave owners, and e and even those who weren't slave owners themselves, be they financial people, bankers, shippers, traders, insurance people, merchants, in in other places like New York or, or Philly or or Boston, uh, more often than not, they they had their wealth accumulation through that same system, that same uh, system of of the Atlantic world of of, of slave trading. Uh, of buying and selling, in other words, uh, of building plantation cash crop uh, economies, et cetera, and then supporting those economies. So, yeah, I, I guess what I want to say, Josh, is that you know, you've tapped into a pretty deep vein of something here and that we shouldn't be that surprised because for all the what the laudatory, you know, things we want to say about the American dream, about about uh, merit and earning your way and, and that. And it's it's pretty ingrained that if we bother to actually take the cover off it and look closely at it, it's not at all surprising that we end up with the kind of people you're describing. Yeah, I really like that point you're making about, you know, how wealth creation becomes, you know, even in the old world becomes a path into the that, that aristocracy. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, I think it, there's a common way, we talked about Western Sid last week, there's a common way of kind of thinking about this shift from the early modern to the modern world, this quote-unquote European miracle, whatever we want to call it. And a lot of it has to do with kind of this emerging kind of commercial class and this is generally presented as like a this is progress or this is evolution or, you know whatever laudatory terms they use for that for it but um you know it's, it's presented as this thing that europeans did and that other societies failed to do but when you start looking at the way you were just presenting it um what it really highlights is is that as we enter that early modern world and that wealth creation gets valued in this new kind of way what it's really doing is elevating people who are i'm going to put this gently morally compromised 
into the ranks yeah. of the elite. I, right? That not that the aristocracy was good or or anything like that, but it was a different system that we tend to associate with that's bad and this new way is good. But you know what you're just suggesting and it was getting me to think about is that's not a that's not a, the right way to look at it at all. It seems like if you're just looking at it from a purely kind of moral and ethical standpoint. Well, absolutely. And I don't look if it seems like I'm pawing on. Fine, you can address angry letters to history against the grain. Uh, <laughs> But look, when I say it's no coincidence that we end up with a Jeffrey Epstein or a, a Harvey Weinstein or, you know, one of these guys who's been, you know, uh, revealed in our own time as, uh, you know, sort of uber wealthy, um, you know, toxic, misogynistic uh, characters. Listen, Thomas Jefferson. All right, mm-hmm. an exemplar of that very system I was describing a second ago, of the land-holding, Virginia gentry, slave-owning class. Thomas Jefferson, let's recall, forced concubinage on a teenage girl, Sally Hemings, who was about 15 years old, who uh, was enslaved, was his own late wife's half-sister by blood because his father-in-law uh, had gotten Sally Hemings' mother pregnant, right? So, so Martha Jefferson's father was Sally Hemings' father, Jefferson's mm-hmm. late wife, Martha. So he, while in, in France, as, as an ambassador, in effect, of the new United States of America, uh, from all accounts, and with the best available evidence, seems to get her pregnant, either while still in Paris or soon after returning to Monticello. But it seems it was in Paris because remember in an earlier episode we talked about this. Yeah. You know, he made a deal with her. He said he would he would free her child upon adulthood from slavery if she were to come back to Monticello with him. Because at the time, France had no laws guaranteeing slavery. She could have been a free woman, you know. But she was an adolescent. She was 15 years old or thereabouts. When he gets her pregnant. Now, I think there's a word for that. And I think the word is New York Times. Oh, no, it's not (laughs) improper. Racially charged. (laughs) No, the word's not improper. The word is rape. And I believe that was uh, Epstein's MO too, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's a great point about about Jefferson. I mean, he's like an endless trough of of material for this podcast, isn't Mm -hmm. he? We yep. never plumb the total depths of of his hypocrisy or his, uh, um, you know, his role in this this system yeah. that we created. That sense but, of um, entitlement, that sense of power, that yeah. all-aggrandizing sense of I earned this somehow. Yeah. So you know, talk about meritocracy. Then there's there is this tendency because meritocracy sounds good, right? The idea of of a society promoting people based on merit, giving off uh, you know access to social mobility through merit. Absolutely sounds good, especially when you look at prior systems and they tend to be based, as we've talked about, on aristocracy and power by birth. But the question that, that arises once you start accepting that the idea of meritocracy is is good is, okay, so what does merit mean, right? What does it require to get that, that merit that can give you access to that social mobility to get you into that elite that Epstein was able to get to? And this is where it gets a little more, more problematic because... Obviously, there's no one way of, of measuring merit. There's no one way of determining what things have societal value and what things don't. This obviously uh, can be very ambiguous. And so in my classes, my world history classes, I like to use 
the example of China as a way of talking about meritocracy and talking about some of the challenges, some of the problems we'll say with the notion of meritocracy and trying to present it for what it is, which is, as I think I said earlier, a legitimizing device um, that's used to um, provide cover to those in power by explaining why they're in power. Um, and so it, China offers us this, this really interesting example because famously um, within Chinese history, and I apologize if you are a Chinese scholar, I'm very much essentializing the system to simplify it for our, for our purposes here. But, but within the uh, broad uh, sweep of Chinese history, uh, Chinese dynasties eventually introduce this system of civil service exams um, in which men are given access to, um, to the system. They can take these exams and compete with each other. And based on their performance, they can um, get access to jobs within the bureaucracy. And through that, they can enter into the, the elite of the elite of Chinese society. Right Now, they're never going to become the emperor that way. They're never going to become a member of the imperial family. But below the imperial family, it is these high-ranking scholar officials who have excelled in the exams who achieve um, this, this amazing success in China. And so when I talk about that, I do make this contrast between the aristocratic systems of power by birth, the meritocratic systems of power by, by merit, um, and then I describe the system in China and how it worked. But the reason why I, do, I like doing this is both because it is an important part of, of trying to understand the, the system that emerges in China, certainly by the Ming and, and Qing dynasties at the very least, uh, but also because it, it, it's a way to get students to critically think about the idea, idea of meritocracy and, and how it functions, not just in China, but even in our own society. Uh, because when you describe the system, while there are things that seem to be useful about it, things that seem to be um, uh, helpful about it, students are also very aware of some of the, the flaws of the meritocracy. So, for instance, um, to excel on the exams in China, you had to have uh, memorized basically a huge corpus of literature, mainly centered around uh, Confucian philosophy, right? So either the works that are associated with Confucius or sometimes commentaries in those works. Uh, you were also expected to answer questions about, you know, history and, and politics and this kind of thing. But that emphasis on this Confucian knowledge is a big part of, of excelling. And so one of the questions that students will often ask, well, is something like, well, why does knowing these Confucian ideas make you qualified for the bureaucracy? And it's a good question, right? Um, but, uh, but is it that different than our own system? All right, now we don't study Confucian ideology, but what are the kinds of, what's the, what are the types of knowledge that give you access to wealth and power in our own society? It's maybe not as limited of a corpus, but, but you know, you look at who's powerful, who's rich, and what are their, what's their talents, what are their education Oh, I like. think, well, I mean, if you're asking, um, I'll yeah. choose to pretend you're asking me, is uh, uh, yeah. how about defaulting your creditors? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of stuck on our current president, you know, and, 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 and recent business revelations acumen, right? of, you know, his own financial records and such. But, uh, uh, yeah, the knowledge, uh, you know, I, I would be tempted to answer that that way. I, I suppose in conventional terms, it's supposed to be what, you know, if you're in business, you know, sort of learning about the principles of business and, you know, that there's a kind of, uh, there is a kind of principle base to it or something. Um, right. Maybe if it's the tech world, you know, you come up through the ranks of, uh, you know, computer programming or engineering yeah. or something. I, I, I guess that's what it's supposed to be. 
Yeah, I mean, how many times have we been told by politicians that that they're going to run government like a business, right? Or or by administrators, for instance, that our school needs to run more like a business, <laughs> this sort of thing. But I would ask the same question about that. Why does knowing, quote unquote, business, why does knowing how to code actually make you a qualified person to run a society? And I think it seems just ridiculous to me as the idea that, you know, studying Confucian philosophy makes you qualified for those positions either. What you also note for, can note from the Chinese system is who gets access to it. Um, because, you know, in theory, it's open to all males can take uh, take the exams and enter the system. But as students realize very quickly, you know, who can actually uh, take the time to learn the documents, to, to read the stuff, to memorize the stuff, to study and practice for those exams? Well, of course, it's going to be the, the children, the sons of wealthy landowners largely, because their fathers and their families can afford to, to buy them books and hire tutors and um, and also can afford to have their sons not working as they grow up, but simply studying and preparing. All right. So students recognize that. And then I ask them, well, is that very different from our society either? Um, you know, who gets into the Supreme Court as, you know, obviously a issue right now. I think at, at, at one point, I think it was all Harvard and Yale graduates who were in the Supreme Court, I think. Is it Elena Kagan went to Columbia or something like that? So she she slummed it and managed to get in anyway, right? But there's this there's clear path that you have to take. And who gets into Harvard? Who gets into Yale? Well, it's the people who go to the prep schools. And who goes to prep schools? Well, it's the children of wealthy, the wealthy, and the people who can hire, uh, you know, um, people to help them craft their college um, um, applications. People can tell them which are the uh, extracurriculars they need to do who can tutor them so they get ready for the SATs or whatever the case may be. And again, that's the children of the wealthy. And, and we teach at a school in which our student body is um, relatively underprivileged, right? I think it's over 50% of our students don't pay um, any fees for, for college because they, um, they qualify because they're lo low income. And so they're coming from obviously a very different background than those who are going to these elite universities and being fed right these elite corporations, yeah. elite law offices, you know, and that you know sort what? Of thing let me well. let me let me just throw in. Uh, I, I I think you're overestimating. If anything, I, I think you know somebody who's rich enough to get an SAT prep course that that almost sounds like merit compared to what we saw with the cheating scandal uh, recently. Yeah, you know where um, certain some some of them sort of B list celebrity types like Lori Laughlin. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're able to go through uh, an agent, in effect, who was uh, creating fake uh, profiles for, for the sons and daughters of the wealthy to get into, who, who had terrible academic records, uh, to get into high-profile universities like University of Southern California, for example. Um, and I can't remember if Yale was touched. I want to say Yale was touched by this too. They were right? somewhere, yeah. There was somewhere in the East Coast, yeah, like elite university as well. Getting them in through the back door of of some kind of athletic program, and and inventing an athletic background profile. In the case of Lori Laughlin, I think it was her daughters who who really only want to be Instagram influencers, you know. But uh, right. mom was making them go to college and pretending they were uh, on the crew team, you know, that they were mm -hmm. rowers. Uh, and, and apparently neither of them had ever as so much as picked up an oar, you know. Uh, and so, uh, I, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely uh, right on there. And I would say that, that, that in the age of Trump, at least, the whole pretense to having any kind of academic record via, you know, influence or, or not, even that has dropped. 
by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it actually came up pretty recently when I was talking about this with my uh, Asian history class, you know, because they asked, well, didn't people cheat? And I said, yeah, people cheated. And there's, you know, we have lots of examples of, you know, people, uh, uh, test takers wearing these really thin silk undershirts and on the <laughs> shirts would be written all the, you know, written out entire, you know, essays and, and, and sections of books and this sort of thing. And I said, but is that much different from ours? And then somebody brought up the Lori Laughlin story as well. So, um, you know, the, the, the point here is not to say that we should not have societies that try to, uh, you know, use some kind of system to determine who is qualified for positions. Of course, that is something that's, that's valuable. But the problem with the, the idea of meritocracy is that what it does establishes these clear ideas of what qualities provide you with merit. And once you have that, then what's always going to happen is that the members of that elite are going to know exactly how to then do the things necessary to acquire those skills to enter into the elite in the, in, in the first place. Now, the Chinese examination system, to its credit, still requires, you know, if we're taking cheating out of it, still requires a tremendous amount of hard work to get into the system that, you know, that if you're going to pass these exams, you had to have studied, you had to have worked for at least, you know, 18 years of education in most cases to be able to sit for these exams. And you had to outcompete, uh, you know, the people taking the exams with you. At various points, the exams would actually be uh, anonymous. Your name wouldn't be on it. You'd only be assigned a number. The people who were reading it, therefore, would not be able to identify who it was, was taking the exams. You know, I would say that at its best, this system was taken seriously in, in, in China, right? That they literally did want to try to find the best people. But what you're still going to get is a system that can be worked by those with enough power and wealth and influence to provide their sons, and it's sons always in this case, because women were not allowed into the system, um, to give them the best possible leg up um, to uh, you know, get into that elite within the bureaucracy. And it's become the same thing you know, in the United States, that you go to the right schools, you know, the right prep schools, so you can go to the right colleges, so you can get the right um, you know, uh, networks, so you can get jobs in the right companies, so you can rise these certain positions and it's it's a rigged system, right? Um, as Lally said, it's it's not all grifters, but those who make it to the top often are the worst of the grifters because they they best understand what the system is, and then how to work that system for their own advantages. Well, and again, I would I would say that, um, and I I don't know, you know, God help me, Josh, I don't know what we're going to do if if Trump should lose this election. Um, I don't know what we're going to have to talk about. But uh, <laughs> I, I think we'll manage. I'll, 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 take, I'll take that hit, I think. Uh, you know, he's made such great uh, copy. But oh, seriously, that um, I, I can think of no better poster boy, you know, for yeah. the, the kind of uh, rotten uh, so-called system, you know, that, 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 you're, that you're describing uh, than the current president uh, mm-hmm. who... And, 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 you know, look, I, I mean, hold me back, okay, because, you know, I, I might be tempted to go into the guy who might be the next president um, and, and what his <laughs> closet looks like, too, you know. But uh, even with those slave owners, who, by the way, I, you know, they were not actual English nobility, you know. Like you say, you know, you have right. these sort of, you know, established noble uh, systems, but they weren't part of the English gentry. They were essentially hustlers. You know, and guys who put it together and got capital and, and were able to, you know, uh, rub out the competition, all that kind of stuff. And then they presented themselves as a squirearchy, you know, as, as, a, as a, s- a sort of quasi-noble cast of the South. 
And I think that's part of the problem, you know, is, is, is in this, this so-called meritocracy is when you get these hustlers, you know, that make it uh, and fashion themselves the way, you know, what Epstein bought himself an island, you know, yeah. in the West Indies, fashion themselves as a kind of neo-aristocracy, you know, with all these privileges, you know, it's a disaster, a disaster in the making, you know, because they have yeah. none of the, you know, the, maybe the, the sense of noblesse oblige, you know, that the actual old aristocracy, you know, not to allow mm-hmm. the you know, aristocracy of old, but nevertheless, a sense of noblesse oblige. These guys don't have that, you know, it's a completely right. carnivorous, you know, sort of ethic that justifies any kind of behavior, including really awful behavior, the kind that we see with a dude like, uh, you know, Epstein. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Trump, but it's his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who's maybe even a more pure example of that because he, you know, he did follow that that path to Harvard and pretty clearly got into Harvard despite getting C's in school because his dad donated a building to the, to the school. Um, but once he's there, once he's rubbing shoulders with that elite, then he's got this pathway to to prominence and then people assume oh he must be smart because he went to harvard and i think we have a lot of examples right now that no he's not actually very smart um, well he's bringing peace but, to the middle when, east what do you want yeah he's working on it <laughs> we gotta appreciate that or curing the coronavirus i forget which one which job he was given but i think he's doing it all a man of many talents um so let's let's actually get to our interview um we got another great one this week again just a, a embarrassment of riches the last month or so with just great people uh, coming on the podcast one after the other. And this week is no different. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, we've got Jordan McGowan, local educator uh, from Sacramento, local for us, not for you guys necessarily, uh, but local educator from Sacramento. Uh, he teaches history and in, in, uh, politics at um, Rio Tierra Middle School. Um, and then also is extremely active in his community. Um, and he's going to talk about both those those parts of his his uh, his identity in his community in the classroom, and I think there's a lot we can learn from Jordan about um, you know living your values on the one hand, but I think what what's also really uh, inspiring. One of the reasons I like talking to him is because when he's in the classroom, he's he's working with students who are 13, 14 years old, but he's not afraid to challenge them in ways that I think we sometimes are with with uh, with with students that young that he sees them as being capable of understanding these broad issues of American society and presenting those issues to them in the classroom as well. So, you know, for educators out there, um, myself included, I think there's a lot we can take from Jordan's approach to education and then also his uh, activity in the community to not just complain about the world as it is, but to do his part to make positive contributions to making it a better world, even if it starts local uh, and then builds from there. So, Really fun to talk to Jordan, and hope you guys will enjoy it too. Talk to me. Talk to me. Very happy on History Against the Grain to have a returning guest. This is Jordan McGowan. We talked to him a few months ago when things were just kind of crazy as opposed to totally insane. And uh, we wanted to have him back to talk about what he's been up to over the past few months, what he's been doing in the classroom, what he's been doing in the community, and then just how he's been thinking about this insane world that we're all living, living in, a, in a part of right now. So welcome to the show, Jordan. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you, Chris, Josh. I know we've been talking 
a lot through, you know, through the last few months. And I'm glad that we could uh, get, get back together. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we were talking about in the segment before this is just this idea of meritocracy, the myth of meritocracy, I guess we can say. Um, and, you know, it turns out the meritocracy is not very meritocratic, uh, that meritocracy ends up being, uh, <laughs> you know, basically a legitimizing device that justifies the power structure in some way. So I'm just wondering how, how you, you're feeling about meritocracy as an idea, um, you know, maybe in, in terms of how you thought about it as you were kind of growing up and, and figuring out what you wanted to do. Did you believe in the meritocracy at any given point? in your life? So, I mean, I think growing up as a young black man, my father gave me the advice that most black families give their children, which is that you have to be two times, three times, four, 10, 20 times better than your white counterparts. And I think that was a way for them to survive. I think that that is still a way for so many black kids to survive and to find value right but i think it also goes to what we were talking about like just this this evil idea really that human beings deserve what they get and so that means that people who are like unhoused or people who are poor people who are somehow at the bottom they deserve that treatment and when we know like number one that capitalism even according to the pope (laughs) recently is, is evil right yeah <laughs> which i thought was great and then right and then two two is especially in this country the united states it's not hard to go back and find the evidence that the government has purposefully you know created this group of people on the bottom yeah and it's you know directly driven from you know the enslavement of africans mm-hmm. and so when we know that you know, we know that there's no true meritocracy. And so like those things, you know, they just go against even what's what's right, you know? And so there's no, there's no factual, logical evidence here in America that would prove that, you know, that's even reality. Right. Now, I think what you said about that, really the key thing about meritocracy is it creates this idea that people deserve what they get. Right. So, if, you know, those who are the top did the right things. They, they, they're, you know, went through the right steps, they worked hardest or something like that. And that's why they're at the top. And the counterpart to that is therefore those at the bottom didn't do things right, right? They failed in some way. And it's just so patently ridiculous when you actually look at our society and all the barriers that exist to who's at the top and who's not, um, who gets access to the steps to even take you to the top, right? Is severely uh, limited. So uh, it's a great point about deserving because that I think ultimately is what meritocracy is all about is telling certain people they deserve this and other people that they deserve what they get as well, which is to not succeed. Hey, Jordan, I want to build on that uh, for a second because, you know, we're all history teachers. And, um, you know, traditionally the way the U.S. history course set up, you know, was to kind of deliver a message uh, that, you know, validated this idea of, of merit and, you know, individual uh, freedoms and that if you worked hard, you could achieve something called uh, the American dream. Uh, and that was a standard, you know, sort of underlying assumption in the way that narrative set out. I mean, that was one of the, the points of designing U.S. history that way, you know, was to, um, I guess, what would we say, you know, validate 
you know, the claims of, of those who had power, uh, who had wealth, uh, and that sort of thing. But, you know, as we've known for a long time, and certainly, you know, in, in our present time, is that that was, you know, a, a message that, you know, was really framed for uh, students who already enjoyed privilege, you know, who, who didn't necessarily <laughs> have to depend on merit alone because those doors were already going to be open to them. And so, you know, as we think about revising the way we teach these things and, and changing the narratives, you know, as you, as you look out at, at your students and as Josh and I look at our students, you know, our black and brown and, and students of color and immigrant students, you know, it's, it's more important than ever, it seems, for us to think in terms of how does this story we're telling translate for these students. And so I, I'm just curious, you know, as an educator, you know, and as a, as a history teacher in particular, someone who's involved, you know, very much in the moment, this historical moment of racial justice in particular, how, how do you try to, you know, either reframe that story or, or adjust it or, or alter it or provide some kind of annotation or something to it so that your students, your black and brown and, and students of color, immigrant students, see that message as being relevant to them. I think that the way that I'm able to do that is because the experience that I have like the American lived experience and history, historical experience from my family is completely different than that than is what is in the history book. And so when you're talking about like reframing and reshaping it, that's already the lived experience that so many of the people around me have. And so they're giving me those experiences, I think. So I think that helps me in that sense, Chris, right? Mm -hmm. And I also believe seeking out like you said as a historian it's our job to do research and to find the evidence and i always tell our kids that we have to be social scientists right they, they love them, you know, social studies or social science so we have to be scientists and we have to put on a scientific you know I, you know I, the same way i say think about all the things that you learn in science class right you have to test things and you have to try different theories out right we have to, well we have to do that exact same thing here and, and I try to use that same, that same, you know, process when we look at current events or when we look at how can we see this event through different lenses, through multiple different lenses. And then now we have to be critical thinkers and decide how, how, you know, how did this play out? Like we know the answer. Again, we can't change history, but we can, do I think it was right? Because it doesn't matter if, Ultimately, it's like it was quote unquote right or wrong. It's all about our opinion, right? Everybody keeps believing that like teaching is not political. Everything about teaching is political because every book is political. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's our bias. There's no way to be 100% factual because the victors are writing it. But again, like the, the, the history books will be completely different if the Confederates won. I mean, I, there's there's just no way to say that you know the way that things are framed are not political and so we have to start to allow 
kids to see all of these different things and then make a decision. And so I think that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm trying to frame it in that way. And again, even framing it, you know, when I say in different ways, people think, oh, you know, you, you can't, you're not teaching it the good old way, <laughs> you know, the standard of the book. But if I give the kids, like we're, we're, we're just finishing up the Declaration of Independence, but if I give them that document, and we read it together and we you know, translate the language and we talk about who Thomas Jefferson was and what the rest of the founding enslavers were and that they got people to fight over some taxes. Yeah, I like that a lot, Jordan. I mean, it seems like, you know, what you're doing is, you, is you're teaching your, your students not just what history says happened, but what history itself is. In other words, history isn't something already decided, delivered to your classroom courtesy of some, you know, big publishing textbook or something. History is something that you live every day, particularly if, if you're, uh, you know, a young kid as part of a, you know, a black community or an immigrant community. You're, you're living the unfolding history and and we've seen that as a, as a whole country it's outside our window it's it's not just you know relegated to this or that neighborhood somewhere you know the whole country has been engaged but you know one of the things Josh and I've been really frustrated with for example on the political scene is how you know in a two-party system right you know you get you get a say a democratic party that wants to pretend it's progressive you know and and yet it's being anything but progressive on some of these big issues regarding racial justice. And, you know, the other day, uh, a historian, uh, and we were talking about this in the episode, uh, you know, cited Thomas Jefferson's uh, for a statement from his first inaugural address when he was elected president, when he said, you know, if, if you disagree with others, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, or if they disagree with you, then you allow, you know, freedom of speech to, uh, you know, to resolve that disagreement, you know, um, in other words, you don't have to take harsher measures just because someone disagrees with you. You can let this open exchange of ideas determine, you know, the course of things. But, you know, as, as we were shaking our heads, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner now. Right. <laughs> so I don't believe he had in mind granting that same freedom, if you will, to those who he enslaved. Uh, that is to have an open exchange of ideas and, and to disagree and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, this is my way back around to you to say, you know, by teaching your students, you know, when you look at a statement like that from a famous American, American, in this case, Jefferson, someone who's often a, a, associated with some particular notion of liberty or freedom, that in effect, it seems like what you're saying is you're teaching them to question the source. You know, who does this apply right. to exactly? Exactly. And and that's actually our in eighth grade. That's our our essential question for the year: is are you know do the ideals professed, you know, proclaimed by America, are they are they held true? You know, are they being held true for the American you know populace? And so um, that allows kids to really stop and look, and and it allows us to do case studies. And so you know. Um, We'll we'll do a we'll do a look you know when we do the Constitution we'll look at Khalif Browder and we'll look at the Central Park Five and we'll look at the situation with Stephon Clark. So there's all types of um, ways to connect it to the kids and, and I think you know that's 
I think that's the hardest part is, you know, a lot of teachers, they don't want to try to take the time to, to learn who their students are, who the, you know, the community is. Um, but I think, like you said, when we don't frame it that way, um, we're doing ourselves a disservice because, like you said, we're, we're living in this, this time that's, you know, shaped by our past. And that's why I tell the kids always, it's, history is the most important class because it's the one you use every day. Like, the world you live in is directly affected by the you know what has happened in the past and when they don't understand that i try to use like 9 11 for example and you know how how everything changed in regards to how you travel on an airplane and i know that you know uh kaepernick has the publishing piece through uh medium coming out right now mm-hmm. was a piece uh um it was a piece from uh, left uh, and man all over the place but it's called resistance is in our blood we're all living in a future created by slavery and it it gets to that the heart of that matter again the world that we live in today is directly affected by slavery right we have mass incarceration because we have the enslavement and so if we don't understand those connecting pieces then it never connects to the kids but if we connect those pieces for the kids or allow the kids to connect those pieces through how we present things they start to understand why it's important that's I love that point. And, you know, when you're talking about using Khalif Browder or talking about the Central Park uh, Five and the, the uh, you know, all these kind of contemporary issues that kind of involve racial justice. I think, you know, when you said not everybody, not all teachers want to do that, because I think a lot of teachers see that as they're being too political when they do that kind of thing. And I think what that doesn't get that doesn't recognize is that not talking about those things is also a political decision. Right. It's not it's not just political to talk about politics by denying these kind of things, you're engaged in a very political act, essentially, right? You're engaged in an act of, I don't maybe don't want to say propaganda, but you're engaged in an act in which you're denying the lived experience of the people in your classroom and the people out in the world. So this idea that there's a neutral history that's, that's just there and that if you push against that, then you're being political is so patently absurd. And it's something I think, you know, all of us in the classroom need to get, get over really quickly if we're ever going to get across real historical messages and historical ideas to our students. Right. And, and again, I don't understand how like you said, like, these are human rights issues. Right. You know, housing, according to the UN, is, is a human right. <laughs> Racial justice, according to the UN, right, is a universal human right. And what's crazy, it's like, it's the UN, right? This isn't even some super, like, progressive group right the un like i mean (laughs) so so if if we can't abide by simple universal human rights in the like this idea and i think if i want to say in the in the standards it says like teaching american exceptionalism i i want to say that in the elementary standards it says teaching american exceptionalism i could be wrong but i'm that's great. And it's like we, right, we teach this to children in kindergarten through 12th grade. So that's 13 years of programming mm-hmm. <laughs> where we tell them that we're the best and communism is really bad and scary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody who doesn't agree with the United States is really terrible. Right. And we go and spread democracy everywhere. And we can go and have military bases in their country. But if anybody tried to even, you know, set up a, a 
tent here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will rip it down. You know, like that's that's not political. Like we're we're op- like we're trying to show the children like what is truly going on. That is what's truly going on. Right. Right. And if they say that's unfair, then like, hey, maybe it's unfair. Kids kids tend to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if they don't know, because all they know is what's you know, they have this inherent sense of what's right and wrong, right? When you give, and you guys know this as parents, if especially when you have more than one, right? If you give one of the kids two and you only give one kid one, or assume, you know, <laughs> can I have some juice? Yeah. Well, they got juice. Can I, like, dang, you didn't even ask if you could have <laughs> some juice, man. Like, you, like, give me an opportunity to say you can have some juice before you get upset. So, it, you know, when we when we teach those things, like kids inherently know that. And so when we say, hey, look, this is what's happening in the world. They can start to say, well, that doesn't make sense. And then you can say, okay, well, that's what's going on. Kids are allowed to make their own decisions. Where if we just tell them America's the best, and everybody else needs to just do what we do. Well, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course that's what they think. Of course they don't know how to be critical thinkers and, and analyze. Of course they can't imagine a world, an abolitionist world. But what would the world look like without police? Well, there's, there was a world before police. Oh. Right? Like, it'll be the wild, wild west. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, if we keep, you know, if we keep capitalism and we just took away the police, 100%, yeah, because people are so consumed with capital. Mm-hmm. But if we turned it into a world where like the most important currency was love care <laughs> of other human beings. I saw a quote, I think it was from Toni Morrison. It said that freedom isn't about you. It's about freeing someone else. Mm-hmm. Which, right. Yeah. Which is like the most un-American statement, right? It, it goes against virtually everything that, you know, the, the broader American society does every, I mean, this is why we're having a problem with mass, right? Cause nobody can imagine that they should have to make a small sacrifice for the, for the good of a, of a larger community. Um, right. and, and you're right that as long as we have this, this world, and this is, you know, why I wanted to talk about meritocracy today, actually, because I'm reading about this global elite, uh, uh, this story about Jeffrey Epstein and you realize it's all, they're all just making it up and they're all grasping for the same things in a society that honors people who, who grasp for the most wealth, the most, uh, influence, the most power. You're never, you're, you're absolutely right. That as long as the, the system is in place we're never going to actually change anything. Right? We're going to be caught in the same path. So it's, it's, it's hard and it's, it's, it can be frustrating when you realize, oh, you can't just change one thing. <laughs> Everything's got to change. That's, it's a scary thought, I think. Yeah. Again, if you're not a critical thinker, if you have no imagination, if you've never been allowed to think like that, and again, that's not what our K-12 system does. Right. If you've never been taught to think like that, that's super frightening. Mm-hmm. Because all you've been taught, all you know, and all you're familiar with will be ripped away. And I think that is, again, like you said, like when you talk to talk about the elite, and I think, you know, we talked about it before we started recording was like this idea that I've been attacking like the black elite or you know, this, this idea that I, you know, am on black elite will save us, right? When you have like ice cubes, you know, and, yeah. you know, Jay-Z and Diddy and all these, you know, all these people who say and do all these things and, you know, say they're for progress, but ultimately they don't want to give up their position in white supremacist society because they believe that their monetary uh, 
status has given them freedom. So I think that they for, they forget that, you know, they think, oh, well, I made it. And so more people can make it. Well, even if more people make it, like those are still the exceptions and there's still a rule. Yeah. And the most the majority of us fall into that rule are being oppressed. Well, and that's, the, that's what meritocracy does best is it has to allow those exceptions in so that people can look exactly. and say, oh, those people made it. Therefore, the path is there for me as well. And if I just do these things, then I'm going to get there. Um, you know, I, I always, I teach about the, in Chinese history, the examination system in China, which is supposed to be this meritocratic system. What's so funny about, about teaching that is that once I set up the system, how it works, students right away can see all the flaws in it, but they don't necessarily see the same flaws. It's, I mean, all the flaws that exist in that Chinese meritocratic system that's, you know, a thousand years old exist in our own society, but they don't necessarily see those flaws in our own society, but they see it in that, in that past. So it's a, it's a good lesson. You can use the past to kind of uh, open people's eyes to, to what's happening in, in the contemporary world. And I think, you know, talk about, you know, uh, slavery and, and, and the institutions of, of enslavement are a great example as well. Those things existed then, they didn't necessarily go away. So uh, it's, it's, history is important for, that, for exactly that reason, I think. It, it opens our eyes to how much connection there is between our own times and, and, and the deep past often. Yeah, Josh, you know, I, that makes me think what you guys are saying here about American exceptionalism. Uh, that's probably some kind of Chinese exceptionalism, but uh, American <laughs> exceptionalism is that if you tell a, a black or brown kid, you know, who's living the full reality, you know, of, of a racial caste, you know, in, in this country, uh, in communities that are under siege by police departments um, and, and, and poverty, you know, generational poverty and these kinds of things. If you tell those kids, wait a minute, America, as Jordan was saying, you know, America is already the best, already exceptional. You know, everything's fixed. Everything's working the way it's supposed to work. What kind of, um, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, must that child have to, to think, well, if everything's perfect and this is my life, I guess this is never going to change or never going to get better. And I think that's the real damage. And Jordan, you can speak to this from personal experience, you know, the real damage of American exceptionalism, we tell those stories and those stories make us sick because they don't offer a doorway to a different world where these things don't have to be systemically, you know, uh, surviving from generation to generation. We can change that system. We can, we can replace that system, et cetera. But we have to start, it seems to me, with the fundamental acknowledgement that that system isn't exceptional. Would you, would you agree, Jordan? 100%. And, and I, I can give this example. And I think you'll see where it connects. And so I had a student, it was like my fourth, it was like my fourth year in the classroom. So I've been around. Um, and at this point, like, I'm really good at connecting with kids. Um, I'm, I'm able to get most kids drawn in, especially black kids, right? Especially black boys. Um, and so he's an athlete. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be able to get him. I'm going to rope him in. Um, and, and we just, we, we battle, we battle back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for a year. And, and I had, I really don't ever have battles with kids. And me and, and this student would go back and forth. And 
it was really because of the way that he would talk to others in the class. He was trying to, he was trying to bully kids because of, you know, kind of what was going on at his house. And I understood it, um, but I wasn't going to stand for it. And so I, you know, I would, I was, I would speak just like him, right? Like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't curse, but I, I would challenge him in a, in the exact same way that, uh, you know, like a young, like a, you know, a young dude on the street. And so he understood that. And, and, and so we kind of, we had this like respect for each other outside of class. And it was always good outside of class. It was just inside of class. We would have the issue and I couldn't get him to do no work. And I was like, man, come on, bro. Like, like, look at what we are doing, you know? And he, he really couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't like sit down and just focus. And we went to Grant and we watched the play and it was a, it was a change. It was during black history month. And he sat next to me and no, he like, wait, no, he wanted him on the trip <laughs> because they're like, he's going to act up. And I was like, he'll be cool if he sits with me. So he sat with me, he watched it. He goes, Mr. Mac, is this real? And I'm like, yeah, bro. <laughs> and he goes, Mr. Mac, I, I swear, I swear. I thought, I thought Martin Luther King got killed. So, so racism. Mm -hmm. Here's a kid, right, who's, whose dad is incarcerated, whose mom is, you know, struggling with addiction, whose stepdad, you know, is in the streets, who's got, you know, best friends and, and cousin killed, you know, in gang violence. And he has no idea that the world he lives in is the way it looks because of white supremacy. He thinks that that's what's wrong with him. He, he thinks, right, like that the way his life is because he deserves that. And that, that's what he said. Like, Mr. Mack, that's why I never cared about school. I thought I, I just thought I was done. No, man. <laughs> the reason it's hard for, you know, your family to read and why they never, you know, helped you to learn how to read was because for hundreds of years, we weren't allowed to read, bro. And then you ne and then nobody in your family ever got a you know ever really learned how to read and then was able to pass that on. That's why you're in eighth grade and you can't read at you know a fourth grade level. You're you know quote unquote an American. Nah, man, you're an African. You're a colonized human being, right? And so when we don't understand that we are still a colonized people, right? Indigenous folks, Black folks, right? That this land is colonized. It's just not colonized by the British anymore, but but it's by the American elite. Right? Like, then we understand again. Now we can now we can start to break out of that idea of meritocracy because that's. I mean, we even have people right now that are you know black elite that are trying to convince you know poor black folks to vote for Harris. Talking about well, and Biden talking about well, you know the ninety four crime bill was necessary. <laughs> they were just acting up what what right but it's this idea well you know you know that over there they just kind of that way well you know they don't want to they don't want to be entrepreneurs they they just want handouts they just want to right and and you know and you see it again with 
you see it with again with with you know with even with PD. Oh well, we gotta we gotta vote Biden now. No, the worst was Ava. If y'all don't vote, y'all deserve what y'all get. Didn't you make thirteenth? Mm-hmm. Didn't you direct when they see us? We deserve this. We deserve fascism. I don't. I and again, that's that meritocracy. Oh, well, if you if you're not willing to stand in the twelve hour line to vote. Who got time for that? <laughs> right? But if you're not willing to give up your time to vote, then you deserve what you get. Number one, it shouldn't be that hard to vote if, if we really care what everyone's vote is about. That's number one. Number two, if I have to work three jobs to survive and I don't have enough time to go vote, that don't make me any less deserving of any kind of rights or liberties than you. Right. And what if I don't vote because I'm not politically educated enough? I don't feel confident passing a vote. I actually think that's pretty intelligent. I haven't had enough time to research and I don't want to make an uninformed decision. That seems like a logical, you know, Mm -hmm. intelligent decision to me. (laughs) Right. So it's just it's it's unbelievable the way, again, like you said, works to where we we start to just, you know, ascribe these these beliefs and i think so just to, to get us back to the classroom for for us you know as we kind of start wrapping up here um just two questions kind of classroom related first of all is what what are your goals in these insane times because obviously the classroom is not the classroom right now right it's it's this weird oh. weird i don't know pseudo existence but what are your goals for your students in you know the, these semesters or these this school year in particular in particular that's maybe different than how maybe you would uh, normally define your goals for your students? Our our union negotiated that teachers would not be evaluated negatively until after January. Mm-hmm. And so I thought if teachers aren't going to be allowed to be graded <laughs> poorly, that students shouldn't be allowed to be graded poorly. That's That's what I thought was fair. If that's what we thought, right, as teachers, like, man, we don't know how to do this. Y'all got to give us some time. And I think we got to give the students some time. Yeah. I think as much grace as we're asking for, we got to give the students. And so um, I'm, I've committed myself to no one failing my class. Mm-hmm. Um, I've committed myself to that. No matter what the situation is, no one will be failing. Um, my goal my goal right now is for participation, for kids to have discussions, for kids to just start to to, to ask questions uh, about why or how or, you know. So those are the things that I'm really working on. Um, and getting, again, especially right now, getting kids, especially at the middle school level, engaged, right, and to feel safe. I know that some schools are making kids turn on cameras. I'm not. I know that some teachers on my campus are. And I know that for a lot of kids, it's just about feeling safe. Mm-hmm. My kid, like my own personal children, are in a you know, nice house with nice clothes in a room. <laughs> like, you know, and they turn their cameras off. Right. My kids, right? And, and, and that really 
I was already on like, let kids just have their cameras off. But when I saw how frequently my own two children had their camera off, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I'm going to sit here and, and be upset that kids don't have their cameras off. Right. My kids are comfortable. My kids are all of these things. And they still want to turn their cameras off because they just don't like it. Mm-hmm. So, so if I know that majority of my students are not as privileged as my own children who am i to force them in these things so i i just want them to be engaged i want them to be talking i want them to feel comfortable in my classroom um and those are my goals i think i'll you know i know that i think january is the time that our district is talking about possibly looking at face-to-face uh, it's talking to me this semester so I think, and then I'll probably readjust. I'll see how this semester went because this semester is completely different than last spring. Yeah. And so I think that we're all learning and growing. And, and for me, I just want to continue to show grace, mm-hmm. hoping, you know, that it would, it would feel more like a classroom, but from everybody that I've talked to and I've talked to kids and even little cousins that are in middle school or high school, and it's all the same thing. You know, even some of the college kids I talk to, it's all the same thing. No one wants to put their camera on. It's, it's super awkward. It's, you know, the participation is not the same. So who am I to sit here and say, oh, I'm going to, I need to do this. I need to do that. We're all trying to figure it out. And I think in the midst, like we're trying to figure out how to teach and learn in this environment. Meanwhile, we're still fighting a pandemic. Like yeah. the reason this whole thing has changed is because of this virus that people are dying to, mm-hmm. you know, or scared of getting and they have fear of getting. So, so you have that on top of trying to, you know, manage a regular, you know, class load in a new, in a new learning method, not to mention, you know, someone asked me like, or we were ta- I was talking to a friend and they said, you know, someone oh. asked them, what's the craziest thing you've done, you know, in the apocalypse talking about <laughs> He said, go to work. Yeah. Like we all just go to work. Like everything is okay. <laughs> like the world is, you know, in Northern California, we had like fires and we had heat waves and yeah. Like there is so many things going on in the world and we're just all like, okay, capitalism says we got to keep, just keep going. Yep. That's the meritocracy. So, that's the grind mentality that, that it, that's the grind. That's the meritocracy. And so, you know, like we all are just trying to, act like everything is okay despite that the world is on fire and i know you and me talked about it josh like just trying to trying to live what's in front of you Mm -hmm. because there is so much going on yeah i read a a piece from uh it was on it was on medium as well and it was from somebody in the sudan and they said hey like i lived through you know i lived through a you know a country's collapse like you you guys are already in it (laughs) you know they're like you guys are already and they were talking about from the pandemic, right? Yeah. Like, you don't just lose 200,000 people and think you're going to be okay. Like, your country is going to suffer for a great while. And they're like, you know, they were saying, like, how when you're not the poorest of the poor, when you're not the most marginalized, like, if you live in a country like that, that's going through, you know, that cycle, for the most part, your day is the same. Right? Like, you go to work, you do these things, but like, 
you know, then there's an explosion down the street. But then, you know, you kind of go about your day and your days. And then, like, you know, you see on the news that, like, some poor people were killed. You just keep going about your day. And that's where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, like, that is where we are at. Hey, you know, some, sometimes, when, sometimes when things are, uh, you know, most uh, upside down, you know, or whatever, you know, it's – the, the, the natural reaction is to say, all right, you know, then nobody move, you know, everybody just hold tight. And, uh, and, you know, okay. Uh, when you're talking about a, a virus that is, you know, highly contagious, you know, we, we have to take, uh, it would seem, you know, cause I don't know about the folks in Michigan, but it would seem, you know, take right. certain conservative, uh, <laughs> conservative measures, but it, but it occurs to me at the same time, you know, as we're talking about some like racial justice, and what, after all, is not just a recent development. You know, this is something that spans the length and breadth of, of this nation's history and its prehistory. And, and uh, maybe now is exactly the right time to, to be daring, you know, to be innovative, to break from the script. And I'm, I'm talking about teaching now. And, you know, we have listeners who are teachers. I guess maybe we ended today, huh, if... if if you can give them one starting point, you know, as, as a fellow uh, a brother teacher, you know, or brothers and sister teachers out there, one starting point for teachers who want to change the way they do it, history teachers in particular, want to decolonize their classrooms, et cetera, but maybe, you know, don't know exactly what that first step is, what would you tell them? The first thing, especially if you're if you're stuck and i think that that's normal because again i think if you haven't had the lived experience of being like the poor and marginalized it's hard to how do i bring their voices in and i think so then the first thing you have to do is like go get a voice you have to uplift someone else's voice uh, maybe go get a guest speaker um but you know, i think i think it it's that right it's this work of like okay i no disrespect. Like, I'm not going to go read white fragility. I need to go grab someone who has this actual experience and allow them to start to, to tell their story because those stories have been silenced. You know, mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's have a, a conversation about whose indigenous land this is. Let's, you know, go have a conversation about how let's have a conversation about what this election means, government teachers, right? And 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 let's let's stop calling it the you know the most uh, like we have to vote out evil. Like everyone plays it up that Trump is this big bad guy. Um, we've had way worse presidents. The Republicans that are voting against Trump just ran a, a ad with Ronald Reagan. Yep. <laughs> Like as the voice of reason, like this man wasn't the devil, you know? And it's like, and again, the way that Bush, I mean, like the way that Reagan was, you know, reimagined, the way that Bush was reimagined. And that's why, I, that's why it's so funny to, that everyone is playing up that Trump is like this big boogeyman. Because one, when he got COVID, everyone was ready for thoughts and prayers for the president. But if he was truly a fascist, like he said, you would not, I don't think people were giving thoughts in, in, in America, they weren't giving thoughts and prayers to Hitler, right? Like when he was hiding out. Right. So if Trump was this big bad guy that 
like he's made out to be, like, why would there be those thoughts? So, like, understanding that it's these systems that are really evil, it's these systems that, like you said, these two-party systems, how, how can we, we're looking at an election, how can we look at the election in the United States and then look at an election in Bolivia? They had three parties, you know, they had three different candidates gain, you know, significant amount of votes. And then they also have it to where if it's even too close, they got to have another runoff. You talk about demo, you know, democracy, they're really making sure people are heard. And we have an electoral college. You know, talk, let's talk about the Supreme Court. You know, everyone makes it this two-party system, but you got the Democrats have been passing Trump's judges for months. You know, and it's like, when we when we fail to mention that and we only look at well it's you know it's Biden versus it's versus Trump and it's Democrats versus Republicans and we stop to look at like how both of these parties are complicit in the same things and they how they have histories that are not only against just like black indigenous folks but really all of the people because all of the people suffer. How can you center black and indigenous? voices in your classroom? How can you help your students to start to think of ways to solve the issues that we have um, in giving them the freedom to imagine? Yeah, I think what, I mean, what that also points to is, you know, as you get older, you just kind of come to accept the system as it is, right? Like you're saying that, you know, when you say abolish police, people say, no, no, you can't do that. It would never work. But kids, especially, you know, when you're getting them, that hasn't been quite beaten into them as much as it has for, for adults. Right. And so they still have this idea that hopefully they have this idea. And I think that's part of what you're saying is that in decolonizing the classroom is, is teaching your students that the way it is, isn't the way it has to be. Right. Which is not generally the way education has, has worked. I think it's a really powerful message. And actually it, it feeds into the, the, the last thing I wanted you to talk about, which is before we get out of here is your own community work, which is something that's been developing since, since last time we talked to you. So you can just tell our listeners about SAC neighbor and what it's, what it's doing and, and how they can support it, maybe. Definitely. So, um, Sack Neighbor goes, it really goes all the way to, like, my roots with my father, you know, being a panther, uh, even just for the short time. I was telling uh, Josh, Chris, I don't know if I told you, but speaking with my aunt a, a few weeks back, and she actually told me the story of how my dad got introduced to the Panthers and what happened was within a week of him coming home, Huey and Bobby had knocked on my grandma's front door and um, asked to you know, sit with my father. And so that set up several Sunday meals, like family dinners after church, where Huey and Bobby came over and ate with my family while they, you know, recruited my father to join the party. And so that is really kind of where like neighbor program comes from. In 2014 and 15, I was doing work out here. Um, you know, with other teachers, and we were under the name Justice League. Um, we had protests and things like that. And we, and my next step was to feed folks, and that's what we did. And I think for Christmas, we fed some folks. Um, but again, like our, our efforts kind of ended in like 2015, 16. Um, so now, obviously, like with the pandemic. Um, people had, you know, I knew that people were hurting. Uh, the last few years, I had been really inspired by my friends who had started People's Breakfast Oakland. And so I wanted to get tapped in with them. And 
try to bring here never really kind of got together i couldn't get it together with anybody um and so it fell through and then during the pandemic uh, my friends in oakland went from serving the twice a week to three times i mean from twice a month to three times a week and i just thought man i gotta step my game up if my dudes are doing that and so i had reached out on my close friends list on instagram and was like hey would anybody like to help me feed some folks because i had been kind of just doing it by myself and i had a really good friend um elise hit me back and so we we kind of like joined in together fed some folks um and we're like man let's let's keep doing it and so from there we kind of grew it elise put together uh you know social media and and things like that and, and we just kind of had a conversation about what the vision would be and what our artists were um and so i mean all it's really based out of like the panthers 10 point plan um and we believe in um so we have a breakfast program which serves which is like what was our, our flagship like kind of program uh we serve 100 meals every two weeks uh, we've we have additional weeks here and there. We've also done like a shoe drive where we gave out over a hundred pairs of shoes. Uh, we did some clothes drive. We're in the middle of a tent drive right now. Um, that's going through the end of the month. We're trying to, you know, really get, get people some shelter before this winter comes, get some sleeping bags, things like that. We just did our hot meals. Um, and then we've also released a magazine, which is um, probably like my favorite thing of all. And so we just released our second issue on Saturday, and that comes out every three weeks. Um, we we haven't announced it yet, but we have a community fridge that we are getting ready to drop, as well as we're gonna uh, we're gonna build a community shelf. Um, so we are trying to feed the people. We're trying to feed the people, uh, not just food, but knowledge as well, um, and feed the people to free the people. Uh, we are trying to uh, also start some uh, like political education, like, like almost like weekly um, seminars, like similar to how the Panthers had meetings. You know, so we're going to try to hold some like that. So I'm not sure if we're going to hold it over Zoom, if we're going to kind of hold off. Um, we're looking to, to build out some other programs, um, in the garden. Um, we just want to follow in the steps of the Panthers. Ultimately, we want to build a school, um, which is like my goal. And I think I talked to you guys about it last time. Yeah. And so, that's, so it's kind of, I guess it's grown really from the school. And now we're trying to build it all with this. But essentially, it's it's the same, you know, it's the same thing. I want to build this decolonized school. Um, we want to do it through neighbor program. And um, it's like community school. So, yeah, that, I mean, you can find us on all the social media at SAC Neighbor 916. Uh, NPR just ran a story on us. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll link all, all this stuff also on, our, on the website. And, uh, you know, it's a good reminder that the, the world's problems sometimes seem intractable and impossible to deal with, but there's always stuff you can do in your own community. And I think you're, you're a great lesson for that. So thanks so much, Jordan, for being on with us. Uh, this has been fantastic. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in the future. I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much, Jordan. Will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. 
the revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Well, you know, that was exactly uh, what I knew it would be, which was a great dose of reality, unvarnished, speaking truth to truth <laughs> uh, in this climate of untruth uh, from a guy who I think has enormous credibility, you know, a guy who is, is deeply invested in his community. He's invested in his teaching. You know, he's, he's discovering himself as a, as a voice. And, uh, you know, when I asked him about uh, you know, how, do you, how do you cancel a teacher who might feel stuck you know, to, to bring this kind of moral clarity to the classroom, you know, and he said, well, you know, reach out to black voices. And, uh, you know, it's no it's no surprise that that Jordan himself carries exactly the kind of credibility uh, and the kind of, um, you know, clarity uh, that we need to hear from black voices in this country. So I'm, you know, I'm really uh, happy, Josh, that he was uh, you know, willing to come on again. Yeah, like I said, you know, in, in, as we're introing it, it's just it, it really is a pleasure having him on because, as you said, he's gonna say he's gonna say what he what he believes. Um, you're not gonna get you know this kind of um, you know what we're so used to, especially listening to Democratic politicians, this kind of fecklessness about you know presenting things in the most mild way. We 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 need more of that. And you know, you mentioned um, his response when you asked about decolonizing the classroom decolonizing the classroom. And I, I want to point people to, um, he mentions it, but Sack Voices is this um, online, uh, basically, uh, magazine or publication that he started along with the Sack Neighbor program. We will have links to all this stuff. But he's got this excellent piece in that um, first issue, actually. There's two volumes now, but this, the first issue on this very topic of decolonizing the classroom, cultural, relevant, and value-driven ped- pedagogy, it's titled. Um, and it, it talks about you know what you can do in the classroom to reach students without kind of falling back into those standard tropes of, of, of sovereignty that, you know, we've been so critical of throughout this podcast. So definitely something for teachers to check out and, and really for anybody to, to check out. If you're interested in what this looks like, he gives um, uh, really great examples of, of the problems of the old system, certainly, but then some of the things we can do to rectify those issues. Here we are talking about the problems with meritocracy and the hustle that you get, you know, say in the business world. Um, but you get that in education too. Even people who are are purportedly, mm-hmm. you know, on the side of let's say equity or you know uh, closing yeah. the achievement gap. There's no shortage of educational hustles out there. Uh, but there's also some folks, and not surprisingly, like Jordan, who are actually in the trenches doing the work every day, day in and day out. Uh, they're not coming from a consulting firm. You know, they didn't, um, you know, beat a, a quick path to administration and, and you know, and find their, uh, their credentials, you know, through some, you know, fast track uh, grad program and, you know, an education or something. You know, when Jordan talks about, you know, what it's like to have, you know, students of, uh, you know, black and brown and indigenous and, and you know, students of color, uh, middle, middle uh, school age students, you know, you listen to Jordan because that's what he does for a living. And to me, that's that's the kind of credibility uh, 
that we were lamenting, you know, in that other, that erstwhile mm -hmm. meritocratic system that louds these individuals, you know, as, as exemplars because they managed to hustle a bunch of money or something, you know, to game the system, you know, and, and uh, you know, hedge, you know, uh, against failing businesses and all those kinds of things. Right. And, you know, and get a pile of money for themselves. You know, we, we allowed them as exemplars, but exemplars of what? And, you know, so with, with Jordan, it's a lot easier to answer that question. This is, a, this is a guy with strong commitment, strong values, strong principles, who doesn't mind putting all of that on the line, you know, uh, to put, put his money where his, his, his mouth is, so to speak, you know, to, to make lives better for other people. Yeah, and, you know, maybe we can imagine a system in which that's what gets rewarded. Uh, those are the people who, who make it to uh, the positions of, of influence in the society rather than the boring, untalented people living the bumbling, idiotic lives that I mentioned earlier. Let's create a, if we have to create a meritocracy, let's create a meritocracy around people like Jordan, around these kind of dedicated activists and teachers and, and people who, who truly want to see a different world so that it can be a better world as well. Amen. Well, this has been episode 27 of History Against the Grain, and we will be talking to you again next week. Take care, everybody. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat. Stop stuck in a cycle.